If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Danny Klinkscale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Insightful and witty commentary, probing interviews, and detours from the beaten path. Welcome to Kansas City Profiles presented by Easton Roofing. Well, we're going to have some fun today, that's for sure, because the man behind the iconic, now, Kansas City music venue, Knuckleheads, joins us, Frank Hicks, who had a career in body shop work and a whole variety of other things that has somehow evolved into becoming a music entrepreneur of sorts. And the stories and the way that it happened and the fact that there was, quote unquote, no master plan, which you're going to hear several times. We'll break a little news about maybe some upcoming shows as well. Uh, Knuckleheads has grown from just being an, an idea of a bunch of friends getting together and selling tacos and beer and playing a little music to a place with four venues of various different sizes and ways to present music. And I've been there many, many times, probably should have been there many, many more times. And if you've never been to Knuckleheads, when things start to, you know, they're doing some things on a limited basis now, but when things really get rolling, I urge you to go pick out a show because they have so many great ones and, and get out there. And they moved from just doing local acts to national acts. And it's a fascinating story by a Kansas City born and bred guy who has a lot of fun stories to tell and does it in a fun way. And you are going to have a blast coming up next with Frank Hicks, the owner of Knuckleheads. And he's our guest on Kansas City Profiles presented by Easton Roofing. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. I'm here with Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing, and boy, we had to negotiate a million things in 2020, but Easton Roofing navigated them all. As 2021 rolls out, what should we expect this coming storm season? Well, Danny, it'll be the same thing as it is every year. <laughs> you know, the storms come, and you've got the guys out knocking on doors, offering quote-unquote free inspections. Be wary as a homeowner. If somebody's knocking on your door, they probably need the work. And if they need the work that bad, they may be willing to do something untoward to get it. So if somebody knocks on your door, says they want to give you a free inspection, just tell them have a great day and give us a call. We'll come out for free and give you a good, honest opinion as to whether or not you need to do anything at all with your roof. And what's the best way to get in touch with Easton Roofing? You can always find us online at eastonroofing.com or give us a call at 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. It's time to visit once again with Dr. Brad Whittle of Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture. And Dr. Brad, your group has reached a significant milestone in receiving a prestigious award. Danny, we've been honored for the 10th year in a row to receive the five-star service award from Integrity Doctors. And what this means is that all of our offices throughout Kansas City have made sure to give people excellent chiropractic and acupuncture care, be on time, and do a very complete and thorough job, and have great responses back from patients. I know firsthand because I, well, I was just treated, for instance, today by you. You have a wide range of fantastic services. 
Absolutely. Chiropractic, acupuncture, physiotherapies, rehab, anything that you need to keep you well in bones, muscles, joints, and nerves. And I can't say how much it's benefited me in the time I'm coming here. Upwards of two years, my back has improved 100%. And you can have that same kind of treatment too. For more information and your chance for a healthier way of life, visit asfca.com slash Danny today. Cinematic Visions has been an affordable solution for professional media production in Kansas City since 2003, offering award-winning video production and creation, as well as a wide array of digital and social media management services. From planning, scripting, filming, editing, and post-production to delivering your product to a watching world, Cinematic Visions will provide professional and affordable services for you and your business with the necessary return on investment to make it all worthwhile. Cinematic Vision's goal is to unlock the power of storytelling through video and a strong online presence for your company. Beyond the numbers, they want to inspire and evoke your clients to feel and act. Let my friends at Cinematic Visions embed your brand where it belongs, in your customers' minds. You can find them online at cinematicvisions.com or with a quick phone call at 816-600-6300. I'm here with Tim Emerson, the owner of Emerson & Company. And Tim, give us an idea of the range of services that you provide from Emerson & Company. At Emerson & Company, we do credit card processing, payroll services. We do bookkeeping, merchant accounts like point-of-sale systems. What would you say differentiates you from other companies in the field and what makes you special? I think what makes us unique is is that we're a small local business making regional decisions on companies. We create a profile for the business and then put it out to our different vendors in a very competitive environment and tailor those needs to the specific business, which usually ends up in a great fit or great result for the company. And of course, the idea is to save money, right? (laughs) Save money. And uh, actually, sometimes I'm surprised where actually a a solution that may cost a little bit more ultimately does save money, but but we're not conditioned to think like that sometimes. (laughs) Emerson and Company. Check them out at emerson-co.com or call them at 816-360-9092. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Frank, you grew up around here. Tell me a little bit about young Frank Hicks. Well, there's not a whole lot to tell. I went. Uh, I grew up in the Northeast area. I went to uh, Whittier uh, grade school, and I went to Northeast High School for first two years. Then I moved out to Independence and went to Christman, and got married at 17. Moved to Buckner, Missouri. Stayed there for about. Uh, I think 12 years, moved to Kansas City and got uh, remar- got divorced and remarried and been living with this girl now for, I've been married to this girl for almost 40 years. So. <laughs> Darn it, tells you how old I am, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it gives me a, a pretty good idea, that's uh, that's for sure. Uh, what was your childhood like? What, were your, what was your relationship with your parents, your siblings, et cetera? Oh, I had a, a good relationship. I had a, a stepsister, and I was the only only really sibling uh, until about forty years ago. Then my mother and, and they had a new had another baby, but she's about the same age as my youngest son. So uh, I guess she's born. Well, my youngest son just turned fifty, so I guess uh, she's about forty nine. But anyway, uh, yeah, I was a sibling growing up. My uh, stepsister uh, came to live with us when I was about 
all six years old. And so it's kind of it was kind of a unique deal. It's like uh, we went to school together. We didn't hang out a lot because brothers and sisters, you know, when at that age, some of them like each other, some don't. But uh, I did like her that the uh, there's a couple places down in uh, 12th Street. One of them was called the uh, uh, Chestnut Inn, which is now uh, Shady Lady. At its time, it's a, a girl bar, girly bar now, but at the time it was a live music joint in Kansas City. It was pretty popular. And I think I was around 15, and my sister was about 17, 18. And uh, we'd go down there, she'd go in and let her in. I guess because she's female and cute, and I wasn't. So <laughs> <laughs> I had to stay outside because if I, if I went home without her, I get my butt in trouble, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I stayed out there, and they was playing all kinds of good old music. I mean, they had good country music back then. Uh, hell, they had, like, uh, I don't know, Ernest Tubb, Webb Pierce. Uh, I think I even saw I think I didn't see it, but I think I heard Merle Haggard there once, I think. There's shows like that. And I don't know, I was just growing up like that, and there was a little, I remember when I was about, oh, 13, 14, there was a little hamburger joint down the corner, like a, it's called Little Shep. It's kind of like a town topic is today. And they had a pinball machine in there, and I was addicted to that pinball machine. It's like a, I had played, I had to play it at least two hours a day, every day of the week. And uh, so what I did, I finally started running out of money, so I started uh, cleaning the place up for them just so I get, they paid me in quarters so I could back here, or maybe a dime at the time, I can't remember. But they paid me a change so I could go back here and play a pinball machine and give them all the money back. But, that was my life growing up as a kid. I was going to, uh, oh, they had in the Northeast, they had these uh, uh, sock hops, which you dance, you know, like a big gym. You mm-hmm. take your shoes off and go in there. And it's called a sock hop. You take your shoes off in the gym. They had dance on Friday night, different bands. And I was uh, <clears throat> pretty much into that. When I went into to, uh, Independence, I'd find places like uh, Rick's Rock and Roll Club and stuff like that and go out there and dance. And, have a good time listening to music. I've always been a music buff since I was, since I can remember, uh, probably 12, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. I got addicted to music and listened to it all the time. So did you like all kinds of music? Did you ever play music? Never could play. You know what? I've got to tell you this story if you got time for it. I, uh, we got all the time you mother, want. <laughs> all right. My mother gave me, uh, I wanted to be a drummer. My mother gave me drum lessons down on uh, the corner of Independence Avenue and uh, what is that? Van Brunt. Hardesty, Hardesty. Independence Avenue and Hardesty. There was a couple little, like at what we call a strip mall nowadays, but just a couple little buildings there that was, uh, had different things in. They had like a music store. And the guy that did a music store pretty much a drunk. I mean, he'd teach me, give me my lessons with a bit of whiskey in his hand. And uh, <laughs> I don't know whether he wasn't really paying attention or I really didn't handle rhythm, but. He told me after a while, he said, after he got all the money he could get out of me, he goes, you know, you might as well give it up. You have no rhythm. And I said, okay. So I quit trying to play stuff after that and never have tried anymore. When it was, uh, when you were finishing up high school and everything, what were your thoughts uh, about what you wanted to do with your life? You know, back then I didn't know. Uh, I didn't really think too much about it. I know when I got, uh, when I got about 17, 18 years old, I was working at uh, Portland Cement. I had my first son before I turned 18. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And I heard a story once. I don't know if I could say this on the air, so you might have to edit this. But you know what condoms cost back in them days? <laughs> this is a podcast. You can tell this story. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what you know what condoms cost back in them days? Uh, no, you tell me. I don't know. We never used them. <laughs> <laughs> right. But anyway, I had my son before I was eighteen, which uh, was a blessing. I mean, he was born on December sixth. I turned eighteen on December fourteenth, and. Uh, Actually, it kept me out of the Vietnam War, which I was happy about. Nobody wanted to go to Vietnam, so uh, I didn't do that on purpose, but I might have if I, if I thought about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, after that, uh, of course, I was hustling job because I had a wife and kid then, and then a year later, I had another. Uh, I had daughters, so I had another kid. And then when I was about, uh, oh, I think nineteen. I got into the body shop business for big semis over road uh, tractors, trailers, and you know, school buses, stuff like that. And I worked at that for about uh, two and a half years. <clears throat> I had $450 in my pocket and had a burning desire to own my own business. So I went over to Kansas City, Kansas at the, uh, the Skelly truck stop at the time, it was right underneath the Vi Doctor. And they had a paint booth. Uh, they rent to me for $250 a month. So I had, and it had all the utilities and stuff included in it. So I bought the, I paid the first month's rent at $200 to go buy products. And my ex, uh, ex father-in-law was, he was at the father-in-law at the time, but now he's, you know, then right. my ex, but, uh, he was the manager for the white motor company used truck department. So I started painting their trucks and that led into a uh, business that uh, I just got out of, I, I did it for 42 years. And I got out of that business in 2011. And Knuckleheads was actually started uh, 2000, about 2000, uh, what was it, 2001, I think. Anyway, uh, but it was getting to be too much hassle to try to work during the day and work at night, too, you know. And after 42 years, hell, you, Rick Tuck didn't look that appealing no more, you know. <laughs> But I had a, I didn't have a contract, but I had a, a, a unwritten contract with a rider truck rental, and I did all their business for four state areas. So I kept us really busy, and we had uh, up to sixteen employees at one time. Most of the time, it's, it's it varied between thirteen and sixteen all the time. And I don't know if you've been down Knuckleheads, but the garage many times. It, okay, the garage is what used to be the body shop that I was in for so long. And so when I got out of the business, <clears throat> I uh, I didn't sell the building, but I sold the business to my manager. And uh, the reason I didn't want to sell the business or the building is because with knuckleheads being across the street and the way we do our street parties, that if I had somebody in there that I didn't know or something, I'd have to ask for permission if I could go over there and you know, block the street off and have a party. And so the, the right thing to seem to do is something to my manager and uh, – that way, and I kept the building that way. I wouldn't have to ask permission on the building. So, you know, uh, he had it for about three years, and then uh, it just it didn't work out for him. So I took it back in 2014 and made the. Uh, I looked at this big old building. I said, well, "I'm going to do this thing." And I said, "Well, you know, I don't have a big enough place in the in the winter time." So I started making a, a music venue out of it, and that's how it came to life. When did you originally start to think about? 
getting into the music business. Obviously, you had a successful business as far as the auto body shop is concerned. And what was the genesis of starting to maneuver slowly but surely, step by step, into the music business? Well, here's what happened in in the early 90s. I think it was like 90 or 91. I got back into, you know, my kids were all grown. I got back into riding uh, Harleys. So with, with me owning a body shop and dealing with insurance companies, I was able to buy wrecked Harleys. So I'd buy a wrecked Harley and I would start putting it in my garage and fix it up and, and uh, ride it. And somebody come along, <clears throat> somebody come along and want to buy it. So I'd sell it and fix me up another one. Well, at one time, uh, my garage, I got a, a detached garage and I had eight of those things in, in the garage at one time working on them. Some of them were done, some of them weren't. And, uh, had these couple lifts I was working on, you know, to have them in the air working on. And my wife started getting mad at me. She goes, you know what? Not only am I a Harley widow because I can't ever see you. You're always out there in the garage. <clears throat> I can't get the car in the garage. Even in the wintertime, the car was cold. She was pretty well pissed off about that. But, you know, anyway, so uh, we were doing so many motorcycles. And, and the thing was, I'd get them done. And, and somebody liked the way it looked. And, and I'd put a price on it. And they'd give me that price. So I'd sell it and do another one. So what happened was you need to be, and to get a wholesale uh, account or leadership, you had to have a, a store, you know, like a, a parts department or something. So this lady that, uh, when I moved down there in 1980, <clears throat> where the garage is at, where the knuckleheads was a, a house at one time. At one time it was a uh, duplex and had, a, uh, on the east side was a chiropractor on the west side where gift shops at was a, a MD and this lady, she lived there for, uh, uh, I don't know, 75 or 76 years. I don't really know the whole story about it, but she was born there and then she was raised there by the doctor. So I don't know whether her mother died at birth or I don't, I don't know. I don't know the story. So I mean, it'd be, I'd be making up something, but anyway, she lived there when I moved there. And I took care of the place, and one day she told me that, uh, you know, she, she was just 75 years old, and she was getting screwed over by people. They wanted to paint the house. They wouldn't scrape it right. They'd paint it. And the bank actually owned it. It was in a trust for the uh, uh, doctor that died. He left everything to her. And so when the bank, uh, she, called, she called me up one day, come and come over, and she says, you can have anything out of the house you want because I'm going to move to the nursing home because I really can't take care of myself anymore. And I said, okay. And so I tried to buy the house and actually did. It took me about mm, almost a year to get it bought. And so what I did, I took the, uh, what is called the gospel lounge. Now I took that Mm -hmm. and made a a storefront out of it and put uh, some used motorcycles in there. And I put a parts counter in there. And to be honest with you, it was just, it was, it's pretty much phony. It was just a, it looked good. And I could take people down there on a Saturday. I go down on a Saturday. But it got to where people was coming down and asking me to buy parts at a discount for all my friends. And, you know. and I had to sell $100,000 a year parts. Well, I was buying 50 of them myself. So I just, it was no brainer. I just get a few friends that does the same thing I do. I like to fix their bikes up. And I'd sell it to them. Well, then they'd tell their friends. The next thing you know, it's kind of got too big for me. I had to really make it a real legitimate business. And so I hired a, a parts man. And had it open full time. Well, I'd always liked the, the music business. And so about 
I think it was 2000. We started that business in 97. I think it was about 2000. Uh, we started doing some local bands in there. And I had a showroom for the motorcycles. I just pulled the showroom out and put the, mo- put the motorcycles somewhere else and made a little uh, stage in the corner and started having local bands. And uh, we started doing a, a jam on Saturday. And we, we had a little trailer we put behind the place and, and uh, we sold tacos and beer without a license now. <laughs> without <laughs> <a license> at <laughs> all. <laughs> tacos and beers, dollar tacos and dollar beers. And uh, we had a little jam session from a friend of mine. He was a musician and he was playing down a little bit. It really wasn't a jam session. He just sat around and, and played people listen. You know, uh, They'd sing and once I wasn't like an invited jam like we have nowadays. But anyway, it kind of started getting popular. We was open from uh, uh, noon to six on Saturday. And then we started really needing to get people down there because, you know, the, the knuckleheads part of it was so popular that, that we started going up from noon to midnight. And then we started doing Friday night. Then we started doing Thursday night. No, actually, we started doing Wednesday night. Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. And I thought, well, it's stupid. Uh, be open on Wednesday, close on Thursday, and open on Friday. So we finally opened up on Thursday, too. And so the uh, knuckleheads overtook the uh, cycle shop, which was called Fog Cycles, and it was pretty. It was a pretty going business. It didn't make the money, but I mean, we had a lot of crowd, and we'd have like uh, we sponsored a bike night over Frankie D's over 58th and uh, Kansas Avenue. So every Wednesday night, we'd all meet down here at. knuckleheads and and ride over to frankie d's and have a good night and saturday saturday and sunday became a, a biker hangout uh and when i say biker it's not like the the guys you picture like hills right not this morning more like the guys that weekend warriors the doctors and lawyers and mm-hmm. cops and firemen that, that uh, have motorcycles and want to go riding on, on day off and stuff you know so we started planning a lot of poker runs and different rides and stuff we go up to rulo just to have some catfish for low Nebraska, and thing we became a destination. Well, after a while, uh, we, when we first started, we put knuckleheads on our logos and our T-shirts and stuff. We had fog cycles, and then put knuckleheads inside of fog cycles. The knuckleheads got so so popular that after a while, it was knuckleheads and fog cycles inside of knuckleheads. <laughs> kind of crazy. <laughs> it turned out, but but the last year we had fog cycle, which was like two thousand. I want to say 2006, maybe seven, 2006, I think. Uh, I looked at the books and we made, uh, would, our, our profit was $25,000 for the year. And the part time, we was, we was open for uh, uh, Thursday through, or what was it? Yeah, Wednesday through Friday, Saturday. We weren't open on Sunday. And uh, it cost me $26,000 to do it. So I was losing $1,000 a year. And I go, well, you know, I, I really like to take that motorcycle shop and make a gift shop out of it and start selling my t-shirts. Got selling t-shirts like crazy. And uh, so the motorcycle thing just comes to an end. It, it lasted about pretty close to 10 years. It was a really good thing, but that's what got me started in it is do, picking up the Harleys and needing a place to buy and sell parts. In 1981 or 82, uh, my father-in-law owned a bar down in River Key. And he passed away. And so 
my wife and I took it over. So we got in, knew a little bit about the bar business. And uh, it was called Jamie's. It was on the corner of 5th and uh, Missouri Avenue where uh, I think it's Casey Tacos now. But anyway, uh, so we knew we run that for about two years. And it, it was just too much for me to do it with the right business the way it was over at uh, Mid-City, the truck business. And that one time I couldn't handle it. But I didn't have all the people I had at later years. So <clears throat> when I started doing uh, the truck business and, and knuckleheads at the same time, it wasn't quite as bad because I could get to work at 10 o'clock in the morning instead of having me there at 8, you know. Right. But it was still pretty tearing, you know, hell, at my age to be working until 2 in the morning and then come in at 10 in the morning, you know. So it, it made me for kind of a dull guy. <laughs> work and sleep right anyway but, but I, i'd always had i always had this thing in the back of my head that i always wanted to have a bar in a car lot and so motorcycles not really a car lot but sell cars too but mostly motorcycles a bar in a motorcycle shop that i could retire you know just sit around and have a few beers with the guys bullshit if they want to buy a motorcycle or a car it was there you know mm-hmm. and so i had this vision of that anyway so uh Nucleus kind of started out that way, and it was really honest to God, it was kind of organic growing. It was just uh, just started happening, and started coming more people. We started needing more things, so I'd buy the the house next to me and I'd tear it down, and make a more bigger parking lot out of it. Next thing you know, I'm old clear over to the corner, and I got a courtyard, and uh, it, it was kind of interesting because I mean I, I never really stopped and looked at it. It was just uh, it needed to be done. I did it. And I, to accommodate the people who's coming down, and and uh, one day a, a buddy of mine, uh, he lives in St. Louis, he come down and he goes, I want to show you something. I said, What's that? And when I bought at the garage, when I bought the garage, it was one bay. It was a fire station, one bay in an office. And I'd build all the stuff around it and built the big the big building, the, the, the what's now known as the garage. And uh, he said, he, he took two folding chairs, and we went. <laughs> this sounds crazy, but. He sent me over across the street at Knuckleheads looking at uh, at the garage. He goes, have you ever stopped and looked at what you've done? I said, no. So we sat there and looked at it. Now, of course, we had a couple of drinks in our hand. You know, that always helps. <laughs> but we was, we was looking at the thing and going like, you know, yeah, I remember doing all this. I just didn't. It was no master plan, I guess. You know, it was just off the cuff. Uh, I had a guy who used to work for me to help me build the, the garage. He goes, you ever thought about having a master plan? I said, no, don't really want one, you know? And so then we took the chairs and we went across the street at the garage. And, uh, are you hearing the static? I'm here. Nope. Okay. All right. It's gone. Anyway. So we went across the street at the garage and sat down and looked at knuckleheads and looked at all the, you know, the expansion that, you know, the courtyard and the stage and all that. And I mean, I guess what it, I guess when you do something every day of your life, you just don't really sit there and look at it, you know. But he he uh, kind of forced me to, not forced me, but uh, enticed me to, to sit in a chair and look at the place and, and how it's how it grown. And it started out as a little bit of old place in the corner and then ends up you know old damn block. And I was pretty amazed by that. I'm sitting there looking at it, go damn, you know. When did I have time to do all this? Because I've been so busy, you know. But that it was kind of it was weird, but that's uh, that's how knuckleheads really kind of got started in in the garage and so forth. And it's just uh, 
you know, I, I've always wanted to uh, have artists that that I liked and, and uh, loved for years. And Leon Russell was always one of my favorites. And he was actually the first National Act we ever booked. And uh, I, mean, I used to go see him down at the, what was it, Miss Auditorium. And they had that Mad Dogs and Englishmen with uh, right. Joe Cocker and uh, Billy Preston, Reed Coolidge, Leon Russell and him. Always loved Leon Russell. And if you'd have told me 20, 30 years ago that I was going to go to lunch with Leon Russell and sit down and have conversations with him, I told you he was crazy. But it worked out that way. And like I said, there was no master plan to it. It was just, uh, if there was a master plan, I didn't see it. Put it that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there might have been. <laughs> the, uh, so how did, you, uh, how did you meet your second wife? Through the body shop. Uh, I had a body shop on the corner. Actually, when I first, I was over, uh, I started telling you, I was, I was on the uh, Kelly truck stop over there for years. Mm-hmm. And then in 1973, uh, we had a recession. And I, I was young enough in business, I couldn't really, I couldn't afford it. So I sold uh, the business, it was called Inner City uh, Truck Painting, to the guy that owned the truck, that, the truck stop. And he's, you know, and I sold to him and he's with the, with the uh, understanding that in a year or two, if I had the money, I could buy it back. So I started working for him for a year and then I got enough money and stuff. And I didn't really want to be in Kansas no more. So I went to uh, 18th and uh, Jackson. There's a building up there I rented at. And I stayed there for about, I don't know, maybe three years. And then uh, Urban Renewal come through there. Decided he's going to start building a bunch of houses and start tearing some of his old stuff down. And so they took my building and they they uh, relocate, relocated me to uh, the corner of Fifth and Troost. And so I was down there. At, uh, and it was real close to where I started. I, mean, I started uh, when I told, told you about the uh, White Motor Company. It was on the corner of Fifth and uh, Locust. Now I'm on the corner of Fifth and Troost, which is maybe uh, three quarters of a mile, something like that. But anyway, uh, so Mary, I'd see her go by, she'd go by the shop all the time. She lived a block away. And I'd see her all the time, you know, just got to the point where you just wave at him, you know. And then uh, she wrecked a car. I wonder if I wanted to fix it. I normally, normally don't do cars, but I said, yeah, I'd do it. And so, uh, I don't know. That wasn't no master plan either, but it happened. <laughs> <laughs> So when did you sort of start accelerating into the more national acts when the Grand Emporium closed? Is that what happened? You know, it wasn't, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't. Okay. I mean, I was booking uh, Leon Russell before the Grand Emporium closed, Mm -hmm. but uh, at the same time, the Grand Emporium did close. And, you know, I knew a little bit about the Grand Emporium. I'd been there twice in my life and uh, I didn't know Roger at all. And uh, I seen they were closing, and it did change things a lot for me because I don't know how they got a hold of me, but uh, a lot of the agents started calling me, asked me if I want to do some of the acts that was the Grand Emporium. The first agent that called me was an intrepid artist, and they had uh, Kenny Neal, uh, Little Ed and the Imperials, and Anthony Gomes. And they said, I'll give you one Thursday, one Friday, one Saturday. I said, uh, you know, what the hell, I might as well do it, you know. 
And uh, so I tried it, man. To be honest with you, I wasn't sure what I was doing, but we had a, we didn't have an up-to-date sound system. We didn't have nothing, but we made it. And uh, it's pretty cool. And when Leon came in, of course, we rented the one for him. But uh, it wasn't very long after that I realized I had to start putting a lot of investment in some sound system, bigger stage and stuff. But, yeah, when the Grand Emporium closed, it was – it, it was it was really a shot in the arm for knuckleheads. I don't know how we would have done if they hadn't closed. Uh, that's always been you know up in the air. How would I have done? That, you know, mm-hmm. and who knows? You know, but uh, with them being closed, uh, with them being closed, they uh, it helped out a lot. And I went to uh, Grand Aquarium a couple times afterwards. We meet you, Mary. Excuse me, just a second. So anyway, I went to Grand Court and I had a guy by the name of Chubby Carey. I don't know if you're familiar with yep, him or not. Absolutely. I went to Grand Emporium with the idea of stealing him. <laughs> okay. I just I just like I liked his I just thought he would be a perfect fit for knuckleheads. But especially on that door stage because everybody's dancing. If you went up to Grand Emporium, did you ever go up there? Yes, I've been to Grand Emporium, yeah. Did you did you see Chubby up there? I did not, but I've been there. Uh, I, w- I went there on multiple occasions. So, but there's not much room to dance. I guess is part of what you're getting into. Well, there was no room to dance with Chubby was there. Everybody was standing up. It's like crowded. The crowd is crazy, but you know it's good. Well, I think the guy named Stuart Solomon bought that from from uh, Roger and Herb. And anyway, he had Chubby up there, and I went up talked to Chubby, and he said, uh, I-, "I don't want to leave because they've always been really, really." Uh, loyal to me and he says you know I, I just can't leave that's okay and i really respected that i mean i just honest to god i went back here with a better feeling than had, had i stolen him because you know loyalty in any kind of business is you know great so i went back and never thought nothing about it and uh i don't know it was about four or five months later he called me up so you still want me i said yeah i want you what happened he said well i went up there and he said they had a note on the the door that said the band canceled. He said, hell, I didn't cancel. I drove all the way from uh, Lafayette, Louisiana to get there. And Chubby's real uh, fan-based. I mean, everything's about his fans, you know. And he goes, it really made him mad that he went there and uh, there was a sign saying that the band canceled. He said, he didn't cancel. He said, he went and talked to the the manager. I'm not sure who it was at the time. He said, well, don't worry. We're going to pay you anyway. He said, well, it ain't about the money about you, you put a sign on there that I canceled and I didn't. So he stopped playing there and started playing knuckleheads been there ever since. And that was like right after the Grand Forum closed. It maybe I think after the Grand Forum closed, he might have played there once or twice after that. But after that, he's been playing for me. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. I'm here with David Schmidt from Private Capital. And David, tell us more about your outstanding firm. Thanks, Danny. Here at Private Capital, we focus on return on asset. In today's world, it is survival the fittest. We look at things from all angles and try to figure out what works best for you. The changes we will see this next year on assets will be monumental. The key to success is knowledge. Know where you want to go, and we'll be here along the way. To find out more, give us a call at 816-221-7775. David Schmidt from Private Capital with the best service for you. 
Right now, it's more important than ever to support local businesses. And 23rd Street Brewery in Lawrence is open and ready to take care of you. Make 23rd Street Brewery part of your KU game day experience, whether you watch the game there or grab curbside pickup for your tailgates or watch parties. But not just game days. 23rd Street Brewery is great any day of the week, and when the weather's nice, you can take advantage of their heaters on the patio. 23rd Street Brewery is open daily from 1130 to 9 for dine-in, carry-out, curbside pickup, and can even help with your catering needs. So support local and visit a Lawrence favorite, 23rd Street Brewery. Firsthand, I have enjoyed the benefits of the CBD products from Canaway. My back feels better and better these days as a major part of my routine are the pain-relieving salve and the pure gold oil. And recently, I had the pleasure of a treatment session using the Canaway CBD in conjunction with the Microlite 830 Cold Laser. The non-invasive treatment session worked wonders, and I could barely tell I was even being touched. TML 830 is the first 3B cold laser to get FDA approval, and in addition, the combination treatment with CBD is patent pending. The new Smart Laser is the only hands-free cold laser in the world and is used by athletic trainers, chiropractors, MDs, physical therapists, and veterinarians everywhere. You can learn more about all the great benefits from the complete line of Canaway CBD products by contacting my friend Sherry McCants at 515-208-6312. That's 515-208-6312 to get outstanding information about Canaway. Most of us have experienced auto accidents, and it's no fun. And even less fun is trying to work on the insurance aspects afterwards and getting full value after an auto accident. I'm here with David Cowan from RecExpert.com. And David, you have an unusual and important niche for people after an auto accident. We have a passion to teach car wreck clients what they deserve. Getting your car repaired only fixes the damage and the paint. Getting paid for your car's loss in value is called diminished value. Chances are you've never heard of this before because most people aren't looking out for you. We help people collect thousands to tens of thousands of dollars for their car's loss in value after the wreck. And if somebody wants to come to you for that, what's the original assessment cost them? We offer a free review of any insurance claim to see how we can help. You can't beat that. Great expertise and assistance in getting full value after an auto accident. From David Cowan, visit RecExpert.com and learn more. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at Danny at DannyClinkScale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. When did you think, you know, start to, you know, you said you were so busy and, you know, it's just sort of organically is growing. When, first of all, how did you handle the music business side of it and why did you have a feel for that or did you have people who you know music business is a complicated thing and booking acts and things like that is that just something that kind of came naturally to you <laughs> well you know i love music. i love music it was just like anybody else a fan i was just a fan of it i had no idea how the hell it run or what behind the scenes and all that but when you take money and invest in something like you know like big acts like leon russell or whoever it was and you learn really, really quick. It's kind of like jumping in the water and trying to learn how to swim. You're going to drown or you're going to swim. And that's the way it was in music business because uh, there's two or three stories I'll tell you. One of them was I booked Leon Russell through a guy named Robert Devine. He's still around. He's in Austin, Texas. And uh, so anyway, I booked uh, Leon and I started advertising. He was going to be there July 10th. And we, I think it was a pitch or something we advertised in. Well, then one day I picked up the pitch and said, Leon Russell is going to be at the Madrid July 10th. I said, how the hell are going to be both places, you know? So I called the agent. I said, what's going on here? He said, well, 
you didn't have a contract and uh they offered five five hundred dollars five hundred dollars more than you did and i said well hey you know i've been i've always been as well in my life I said, I said we had a deal you know i didn't need no damn contract you said he was going to come you asked me x amount of dollars i told you i'd take it and everything was cool and you never even come back and said well i got offered 500 dollars more and want more money you never said nothing to me i had to pick up paper and find out it's you know the show's not at my place and so it really irritated me that happened like that and so i started learning real quick and then i had a uh remember the man in boston there was a guy named mm-hmm. uh ran uh i can't remember that name costco uh, anyway, costco cosmo cosmo something like that it took the lead singer's place anyway they were gonna bring him in on a side project with another band and so of course i put the deposit down 50 percent and never heard from nobody after that you couldn't find it, the uh, promoter or the, the uh, agent nowhere he took everybody's money and skipped down i don't think it was ever going to happen anyway so when you do three or four things like that you know you learn pretty damn quick <laughs> go <laughs> Either you're going to learn quick or you're going to go broke. And I wouldn't know, let nobody, you know, take it, take the money. I worked so hard for us to hell with this. I got to figure this out. So when that's you... kind of how the music business was and, and, and probably still is, you know, I mean, uh, I had a, I want to tell you who it was, but I had an artist just the other day that, uh, was going to come through their aid, through their management rather than through their agent. And they want me to give them 60% deposit, which is unheard of. It's normally, deposits anywhere from 10 25 or 50 percent so when they asked 60 percent i said no you know so i give you 10 percent and uh, they didn't want to do it so i got nervous because i've been screwed like that before and i said no i said i think we'll just pass on this deal and i might have screwed up because it was a really pretty popular group but i think i could have made some money off of it i'll say who they are but it was just just didn't seem right to me and you guess on this kind of business, you really kind of got to go with your gut. Right. You know, if, if something feels like it's going to happen, it's going to be good. It will. If you, you feel like it's going to go south on here, never going to happen. It probably won't. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, uh, I grew up, the other thing too, that helped me out in the business. I forgot to tell you this when I was at the, the uh, body shop, uh, you remember the place called United sports, uh, Russ Klein had, all these monster trucks going, they were real big at the time. And uh, my buddy, uh, I've known forever, worked there. And so they brought this army tank. It was a, it's called an re- army retriever down at my place. And we made it, call, we called it the Avenger. We made it shoot out, fire out the, the, the little cannon things they had on it. And indestructible car because it made out of uh, a half inch steel. And they took it out on the, the all the places they took it up. Yeah, the hell to take it overseas. And it was like an indestructible monster trucks. You run over it, never heard it. So uh, Russ Klein and Chris Fritz was uh, partners. And Chris had New West. And so Chris and I became uh, friends. And I started working on his cars and traded uh, work for cars for tickets and stuff to shows. And uh, He had a, one of his right-hand guys, Dan Faggart. And... Uh, when I got really going in business, I hired Dan Baggard. Uh huh. Couldn't work for me. And uh, anyway, just being around Chris a little bit, I knew a little bit about it. You know, mm-hmm. just kind of, I knew Chris, the people in Chris's office. I knew them real well. And uh, with Dan, I mean, I knew how Dan, like he showed me how he worked at Starlight and 
different things you had to do for like action, like Gordon Lightfoot or something, how you pay him and all that. So it gave me a little insight in that too. Right. I right. Tell you that. So, so I did have a little insight. Well, I guess there was a, I guess there was a master plan. <laughs> <laughs> a unique master plan. Uh, I know. But over the last several years, you know, the, now you have all these different venues and did that was it, was that just another step-by-step thing where you figured, okay, we've got this level of act and they, they can only, you know, they play there and then the gospel lounge is small, but it, it has its place as well. And, and then of course you needed some place in the winter. Uh, how, how did, did you feel like, uh, so I guess there was no master plan there either, but uh, did, did success just make this necessary that you have all these different enterprises going now? Well, like you said there, the thing about it was in the winter I needed a bigger room because if I'm going to have acts like uh, Danielle or, or Samantha Fish or you know Chubby Carey, anything that brought a big crowd, uh, it was so it was so congested in the saloon that mm-hmm. I needed a bigger place. So that was a perfect idea for that. The outdoor was a perfect place because you know uh, it was my little version of that, and I'm not saying it's like it, okay, but it's my little version of Starlight, where you know. You sit down at the patio and watch the shows, uh, and so. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it become it become different stages for different artists. And I get, uh, are you familiar with David Lindley? Yes, of course. Okay, well, David Lindley, he's played every room I got. <laughs> I don't think he's played a garage. He played every room I, I had other than the garage, and uh, he always loved to go. He liked the gospel lounge. He said, "Frankie, said I don't know what it is back here." He says, "Don't touch nothing. Don't change nothing. Don't." He said, this sound back here is, he said, it's immaculate. And I, you know, from, coming from David Lindley, it was a hell of a compliment. And so he always wanted to go back to gospel. And so instead of $20 tickets, we'd make him $40 or $45 tickets, put him back there, and he'd sell it out. And I'd make the same amount of money, and he'd make the same amount of money as if he was in the saloon, so the saloon side or outdoors. You know, he would, he would draw so many, you know, he would only draw so many people. The guy was fantastic. And, and, Putting back in the gospel lounge would make it even more special because then only at the time I think it was 75 or 80 people could get in there and see this show. So it was it made it more personable. And people didn't you know there's no talking in the show. If you talk if you sitting there trying to interrupt the show, somebody start everybody started looking at you, and uh, so it kind of pleased itself and said it started being really good for other artists. So I started bringing in several artists like I bring Paul Thorne in there every year he does a show back there uh I did uh <clears throat> Shelby Lynn I did her back there and charged 135 dollars a ticket but it was so intimate because only we only sold 75 tickets at 75 of the best fans in Kansas City saw her and I offered and I never got this and they they laughed at me thought I was crazy but I offered Chris Christopherson $25,000 to play back there <laughs> they just they didn't want him to play to that smaller crowd and i thought it'd be cool i mean i, I told him i didn't give a shit he sung so i just wanted to hear him tell stories you know <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> it, and they go well, how much are you gonna charge for a ticket and i said 375 dollars and they go you think you're gonna get 375 dollars i said well you know I, there's a million people in kansas city if i can't find you know 60 or 70 people that want to pay 375 dollars to see uh chris christopher's in this little room I need to lose my money, you know? <laughs> but they laughed at me. They said, no, we can't have him play with that. You know, 
and I understand this. I've, I've been a big, big Jackson Brown fan for years and years, and I always wanted to get Jackson down there. Well, Jackson's really too big for knuckleheads. Right. And we went out and interviewed him one time. Ben Mead and I went out and interviewed him for a film Ben was doing. And I was talking to him, and uh, he said, you know, I'd like to play at your place. Dave just told me about your place a lot. I got several friends that's played there. You know, the Watkins has played there, and several people played there. He said it would just kill my career because then they'd say, okay, he's playing at a 1,200-seat venue, venue, or a uh, capacity venue. He must not be doing well. You know? Right. And he said, but here's how you can do it, Frank. And I never did have pursued this. I should have. But he said, have a benefit. Nobody gives a damn about benefits. I mean, they don't, they don't care. I mean, when I say they don't give a damn, I don't mean. Right. People, people but, do care. But, the industry don't care because, okay, he's just doing a benefit for something he likes. Right. right. And he's not trying to draw a crowd, you know. So it never gets reported to Pulsar or to to agencies, you know, because the benefit is so you do a benefit for something I'm interested in, I'll play your venue. So. That's still on the back burner. I'll do. I'll do that one of these days. <laughs> Better get on it. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Wow, you think my time is getting short? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean Jackson Brown's time might be getting a little short as, as far as performing. Hey, hey, we're the same age. Yep. He goes. We might go together. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, the, the last couple of years have been so difficult, or the last year it seems like ten years, but uh, oh, man. with with COVID and. You've really made efforts in the right way to, you know, get people back out a little bit. Try to do it safely. And how, what has that challenge been? I mean, it's been so you couldn't in the, uh, nobody's wildest nightmare could they a music music venues imagine something like this occurring. It was so devastating. It was almost like you know I sat there when they first shut us down. I think it was like March. I think it was I think it was St. Patrick's Day. It's been almost a year. Uh, I sat there and looked at the place empty and I go, man, I haven't, you know, for 20 years, I haven't seen this place empty. Boarded up with the gates, and not boarded up, but the gates locked and not open, no signs on or nothing. It was, it was just, it really took me by, uh, I don't know, it didn't take me by surprise. I, I guess it did take me by surprise because nobody knew it was going to happen. But it just devastated me to look at it and go, man, and, all, and, and really honest to God, it's all about the I do this. I knew I. I don't do it for money. I do it for fun. I do it for to have people have a place to enjoy. I mean, I could. I made more money at the body shop than I ever did at Knuckleheads, but I didn't like the body shop. I mean, I did years ago, but after forty-two years, I didn't. Have, and I always loved music, so it was kind of intriguing for me to see if I can get bigger acts like the Merle Haggards and the Johnny Rivers and you know uh, Leon Russell to come here, and and and. I just thought, you know, well, now I can't do that no more. And is it ever going to happen again? And so I thought, man. And so I think it was, uh, what was it, like May 15th or something, they said we could open back up to 10%. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to lose my butt at 10%. But at least I'll be doing something. I was getting so fat and lazy from sitting around. And doing, <laughs> I mean, I always thought I wanted to retire. Boy, after COVID, I said, hell no, I don't ever want to retire. You know, but. But again, that's the wrong way to look at it because you couldn't go nowhere. You know, We're, right. you know, everything was closed, so it wasn't really a comparison to retirement. But uh, I'm going like, man, this is what like to stay, this is what it's like to stay home. Yeah, I'm gonna go be a Walmart reader or something. You know, <laughs> but uh, 
it, it was just uh, it was devastating and, and it was very trying and, and to put 10 you know put ten uh, percent in there which we'd had shows you know uh, in the gospel lines bigger than what I could have them out in the, in the saloon now you know right but we started doing uh, tacos and, and uh, beer on Sunday and you know if we was over, if we was overpacked we put them outside in the patio and let them you know so we ten percent out there and ten percent here. So then I got to thinking, I thought, well, you know, why don't we do that? We'll put 10% outside, 10% inside, and 10% in the garage. And at least we're doing 30% of the business, you know. Right. So that, you know, you have to be, and I'm not saying that this about being boastful or nothing, but in this, in the COVID era, you have to be very creative, you know. And they started doing all these drive-in concerts, and I, and I had guys that worked for me to come up with this idea way before I heard about it. Let's take the parking lot. And do a drive-in, you know. But there were so many downsides to that because I see, okay, if you get somebody trapped in the car, for, for number one, if you dare to make any money, you can't sell no booze because they're going to bring it in the car. Right. Number two, everybody's going to park and somebody's going to want out. And right. They're going to get pissed because they can't get out. Next thing you know, you got a big old fight or something going on. And nowadays, with everybody shooting each other and all that crap, and then you know, the, the tension that COVID brought among all the, among people got them so restless and, and bored and, and angry and losing their jobs, losing their houses, losing, you know, that I thought, man, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea, you know? And I think it's worked for a lot of people. I'm glad they did. Uh, I just didn't want to try it. I just thought it didn't, it didn't look right. If, if this business ceases being fun for me or fun for people coming down, then I don't need it no more. You know? Right. Well, we slowly but surely are getting, towards where we think maybe in the summertime. And for instance, I have tickets to the Mavericks and it was supposed to be last May and then it was supposed to be September. Now it's supposed to be this May. I don't, I don't imagine it doesn't seem like maybe it's going to happen uh, in May. I but... think it's going to happen. Matter of fact, I got, uh, as soon as I get off the phone with you, I got to call in. We got to talk about this. Uh, if the, here's the problem we're going to have. And, and I and think we're going to work it out. And I shouldn't tell you this, but I will. <laughs> okay. Uh, if, if the, capacity doesn't change between now and then now and may we're talking about doing two shows a night to split the crowd do that an early show and a later show and so what we do is like you got tickets for friday night and we'll try to to put a uh, let's say a, a 7 30 show right and and a 10 o'clock show on yeah Okay, well, yeah. there you go. We're breaking news here uh, on this particular thing. Well, don't be spreading it yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be heard. That, that's just in the talk. That's in the talking stage. Yeah. Here's the deal. I mean, real honestly, here's the deal. Mavericks want to get out real bad, and they want to play. And when Raul was here in, in uh, uh, November, he said, "Man, how great would that be if if we got out of this COVID crap? Our first gig back as the Mavericks would be knuckleheads." And so we're trying everything we can not to reschedule it. All right. Well, that's the that's... only thing. The only thing that would keep it screw us up is if we don't get any kind of capacity deal going. Because you know, I mean, right now I think we could stop, still pull it off if we did two shows. Uh, but you know, then we got the then here's the other thing. Bad. I, I hate to mention this too, but you got the Mavericks, which is probably one of the best party bands in the world. Yes. Everybody's got to be social distance. They can't dance. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't see that being a whole lot of fun. I mean, it'd yeah. be fun. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's not the normal average show, but no. Nope. I don't know. 
We'll see. We'll see what happens. But we know sooner or later it's going to to we're going to be back to some sort of normalcy. What do you see? You said said now that you don't think you want to retire, but and and all you've done is sort of grow and grow and grow. What do you think the next few years hold for Knuckleheads? I think we're going to continue growing. I think we're going to start. I mean, we'll be changing things all the time. I I, I just I can't sit still. You know, if you come down Knuckleheads and something's not changed, then bring me some flowers in my grave because I'm gone. You know, but I, I think that there's going to be some uh, different changes around here. I think there's going to be some uh more uh, not i want to say more but it's going to be some more shows in the park like we did uh there's going to be some more street parties they're going to be you know uh we're looking well actually we're going to do briar fest you know where that is yes we're going to do that this year down knuckleheads we're looking at a couple other big events like that too but uh i don't see it stopping at all and i, I see it maybe uh there's really not a whole lot place to go but up you know, I mean, like if I might have to put a second story up or something. I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I haven't got a plan. don't have a master plan. But <laughs> you know, it sounds like this is I sort of. i tell you this. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> it, it just sounds like this sort of has, you know, all the th- enterprises you've had and everything else. It sounds like this, you know, later chapter in your life has sort of been a kind of a dream come true for you. It really has, you know, and, and I think uh, I thank God for that. And I think, you know. If something did happen to me, I've had a good run. You know what I mean? I just, I've, I'm happy with life. I've been successful in business. I've been successful in, in, in friendship. And I think, I think people that are my friends and people that uh, I love and, and customers and friends and everything, I think that that's how you measure your success, on, on not money. You know, yeah, money's only going to get you a steak instead of a hamburger. But, you know, uh, having people that, that, like you and you like them and they'll do things for you and you do things for them. And I've always said that I think that there's a secret behind knuckleheads of why it's successful. It's really like having a party in your backyard. You just invited a bunch of neighbors to come in and have a, a cookout or, or band or whatever, but it just, it seems really down home type feeling. And I, and I don't ever want that to change. I want it to always be like, I'm going to come, to, I'm going to a friend's house, you know? And uh, I know it sounds kind of corny, but that's how it is. This podcast was made possible by our great sponsors like Easton Roofing, the presenting sponsor of Kansas City Profiles at the Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Easton Roofing, where integrity matters. We hope you enjoyed the latest Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Come back soon for something fresh and new. Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.